what we can do now. So lifestyle interventions. So th- th- there was a couple of things I wanted to think about in there. So um, A, you know, how much difference do we think we can make? But the other thing is, so doctors have been saying move more, eat less for decades. How, how do we get beyond that? Yeah. <laughs> how do we get beyond that to something more well, concrete where people actually yeah. implement? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can't answer the question of how we uh, modify people's behavior. That's something I'm very interested in and something I'm thinking a lot about, but I don't have an answer for you. Right. So the one thing I will say is, um, first of all, you, you, you asked how much I, I think that that's going to be obviously individual dependent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you already move more, eat less, and we'll come, we'll come back to that. Cause I think it's mm-hmm. obviously going to be, it's more complicated than just that. But if you already live a relatively healthy lifestyle, you know, how much can you get on top of that by further improving your lifestyle? That's a moving target. I think mm-hmm. for the average American, and it also depends on how you want to define good health, right? If right. we take the sort of very simple definition of no existing disease and say, how long can we keep somebody at that no existing disease point before they get their first disease? My guess is for the typical American, it's 15 years. It could be a little bit more than that, could be a little bit less than that. Depends a little bit on whether you consider obesity a disease because obesity dwarfs everything in America as it does other other parts of the world. But my guess is it's about 15 years, certainly a decade. Um, You know, uh, I've sort of taken to calling that the lost decade the decade of 10 years of good quality life, at least that most people could recover through primarily lifestyle changes. And I think that's that's probably the low end. I actually think it's more than that for most people. So anyways, that's kind of where I would peg it. Um, so what does that mean? What do we mean when we say lifestyle changes? So you said, you know, move more, eat less. That's a very that that's nice in terms of simplicity. Obviously mm-hmm. it doesn't work in terms of getting to people, people to do it. I think one of the reasons it doesn't work is, is, is particularly the, the eat less part, um, at least in the United States. And I think this is true in many other developed countries as well. We are constantly bombarded with really good tasting, really high calorie, really, really bad food, right? Constantly. And oftentimes it's hidden how bad that that food is for you. Like it's not obvious to people who aren't reading the latest reports and keeping up with the nutrition uh, world, or at least, you know, the, the popular science version of the nutrition world. It's not obvious to people what they're putting in their bodies. So I think honestly, uh, even though sometimes the people who are pretty well informed, we're like, well, everybody knows that. But I think that's not true. I think there are a lot of people who don't know what they're eating and what they're what they're putting in their bodies and what the impact is, and particularly the impact of these highly processed foods that have been sort of engineered to change your brain chemistry in a way that wants to make you to eat more. So it's not only about eating less, I think probably more importantly is what you eat. And I think that's that's part of the, that's that's gotta be part of the solution is educating people on what they eat. Because I think for most people, if you, take out a lot of the ultra processed foods, a lot of the foods that are very high in added sugars, that alone has a big impact on how much you eat for most people. So, and that that's that's um that's not easy, but I think it's a place to start. So I think that's gotta be part of the solution is getting people to eat a nutritious diet where you take out a lot of the stuff that is working against your ability to control what you eat or, or how much you eat in particular. Um, the exercise part, you know, 
Again, I think it's going to be somewhat individual. My personal belief is particularly for people, I mean, I think this is probably true throughout all, all, all phases of life, but particularly 40s, 50s, 60s, and later, um, whatever you need to do to build, to the extent you can build muscle mass, but but to maintain muscle mass into old age is really important. And, um, and so that's going to have to involve some sort of resistance training, but I think there are a variety of ways you can do that. But this is again, where the diet piece intersects with exercise. So it's not just about move, it's how you're moving. And I personally believe that activities to build or maintain muscle mass are uh, very important and underappreciated again by the general population. I think people who are in this world are like, well, duh. Yeah, that's obvious. People who aren't in this world don't necessarily know that. Um, so that's, that's another piece of the equation, but, uh, this is where the diet comes back into play because your ability to build or maintain muscle mass is going to be impacted by what you're eating and how much you're eating. And one of my worries here is that some of the sort of, uh, fad diet approaches and also some of the new prescription medications, you know, may actually be working against the ability of people to build and maintain muscle mass. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, diets that emphasize, uh, strong caloric restriction, fasting, or like the GLP one, uh, agonists that basically, you know, uh, cut down on your desire to eat, they will work for weight loss. But if you don't pair that with resistance training, much of that weight loss is going to be lean mass. It's going to be muscle mass. That's harder to get back as you get older. So there's this challenge of, for a lot of people, we want them to lose weight, but we don't want their weight loss to be muscle mass, right? Yeah. So how do you pair those things? So again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm light on, I'm, I'm heavy on, on noticing problems here and light on solutions, except I think I know what some of the pieces are that have to be communicated as part of the solution. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times people get lost in all the information that's out there. You know, the influencers that are talking about intermittent fasting or this and that, uh, you know, so sometimes I think these important pieces get lost and people get off in the weeds and it can actually be counterproductive. So then the question, how do we get past that? Like, how do we do more than diet and exercise? I mean, I think, you know, there's growing recognition of the importance of sleep. That's one thing that's kind of changed in the last 10 years. I, at least in my, in my world, I don't think so many people were paying attention to sleep quality uh, as an important component of, of health. Um, so a lot, there's a lot more attention being paid now. I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think the attention to the, the stuff that's a little bit less quantitative and a little bit, you know, I don't, I don't know, more touchy feely sort of, um, however, whatever you want to call that, well, uh, uh, sort of mindfulness or, you know, uh, connectedness, um, there's a growing appreciation of how important that is. And I would say the connection piece is particularly important um, in the sense that there's a, there's growing evidence that, that people who have stronger uh, human connection tend to be better in a whole bunch of health outcomes as they get older. And I think that connection is also important because it feeds back on your ability to maintain your diet or be active, or it can for some people, if those connections reinforce those behaviors. So I think that connectedness piece is also something where there's growing recognition. There's also a lot of noise around those things, but there's growing recognition of the importance. So those are things that I would say are good and they are um, in addition to nutrition and exercise, the supplement world is still a real challenge for me. I'm not a huge believer in supplements. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm to some extent a natural skeptic. Um, 
but there isn't a lot that rises above my bullshit threshold when it comes to supplements. So, you know, the things that I take personally, and I've modified, I take more now than I did two years ago, but, you know, I take uh, vitamin D and that's in part because I was tested and I was low in vitamin D. So that makes sense. Um, I take uh, omega-3 now uh, and I take creatine usually, but that's in the context of my resistance training. Um, I don't know how much benefit I'm getting from it, but no harm. Uh, and there's some pretty good evidence that creatine is beneficial. And, and then on the diet side, I eat a diet that's pretty high in protein. And that's a whole nother, we could probably spend a half hour on protein and diet. Cause there's a lot of disagreements out there. And I, I, all I'll say is, you know, I think you can find evidence to support both sides of that argument. Should people eat a high protein diet or a diet lower in protein? I would say I, I'm pretty confident I know as much as almost anybody else out there about the actual data. And I've looked at the data. And in my opinion, the risk reward strongly falls on the side of eating a high protein diet and combining that with resistance training compared to eating a low protein diet and not doing resistance training. That's my personal opinion. That's why I do it. Interesting. Yes, I it would be nice to dive into protein, but um, yeah, we I don't think we have time. So calorie restriction is held up as like, a uh, the gold standard, in fact, for life extension. But I saw you say that on, on another podcast that um, it doesn't always work for even even in mice, right? Right. Calorie restriction is kind of genetically dependent. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So there's two parts here, I think, that are really important. One is we can talk about the caloric restriction data in laboratory animals, and that. And, and by and large, we're going to talk about mice and rats, rodents. Um, but also, I think we need to recognize, I think caloric restriction is one of those places where humans are going to be very, very different than mice and rats. So there's a whole host of other considerations when we talk about caloric restriction. And I would put intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, sort of all in that same bucket for now. Um, there's a whole host of other complications that laboratory animals don't deal with when we're talking about these moderate to extreme dietary interventions like fasting and caloric, caloric restriction. And the things I'm talking about that humans are sort of uniquely uh, susceptible to or that are different are the environment, which is very complex, all sorts of pathogens floating around out there that mice don't, don't get exposed to. Um, the psychological consequences of uh, withholding something from yourself when you are constantly, as we already talked about, being bombarded with, you know, the opportunity to eat whatever you want, as much as you want, which again, the calorically restricted mice don't have that option. We control how much they get. The human environment is very different. So that doesn't often get appreciated. Um, and then the social context. So food is important in a whole bunch of social contexts. And when you're practicing one of these dietary re regimens like intermittent fasting, caloric restriction, there is a social consequence. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's a social consequence that is different than what we study in the, the rodents. So I think all of those things are important to take into consideration when we're thinking about what we recommend to people. In addition to the, what I think is over interpretation of the mouse data as it's presented to the general public. So the mouse data is pretty easy to sum up. A caloric restriction in mice and rats is certainly the gold standard for a longevity. And what I mean by that is lifespan extending intervention in those organisms. 
The largest body of literature for experiments where lifespan has been extended is with caloric restriction. And the largest magnitude of effect, about 60% is with caloric restriction. That's an experiment that was done in the 1980s by Rick Weindrick and Roy Walford. Um, and again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to the point I was making before. We've known about caloric restriction since 1930s. The experiment I just alluded to was done in the 1980s. 1980s was 50 years ago, guys. Why can't we do better than caloric restriction in 50 years? And I think it's because people aren't looking. So that's to go back to that other point I was making about the million molecule challenge. Okay, so back to caloric restriction. So here's the thing that often, so, and, and I think that's a good reason to say caloric restriction is the gold standard. Um, a couple of things that get misrepresented. One is uh, intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting without caloric restriction does basically nothing to lifespan in mice. Might be a tiny effect. So there's all these people who are out there talking about intermittent fasting, you know, as this great thing. That might be true in people if you also calorically restrict, but if you intermittent fast and you don't calorically restrict, meaning you eat more on the days you're not fasting, there's zero evidence from the animal studies that that will do anything to you for longevity, let alone data in people. So that's one thing that gets misrepresented. Same thing's true with time-restricted feeding. Um, but the other thing that doesn't get talked about is that at least in certain genetic backgrounds in mice, this is also true in the simpler organisms like flies and worms and yeast, in certain genetic backgrounds, caloric restriction doesn't increase lifespan, or in some cases, it actually shortens lifespan. And how frequently that happens is a little bit unclear because those, those studies just haven't been done that often. It probably depends on the amount of restriction, but at 40% restriction in mice, the one study that looked across I think there were about 40 different genetic backgrounds, about one third of the time, there was a statistically significant reduction in lifespan at 40% caloric restriction. Whereas the studies that are pointed to for lifespan extension have been in that 40% restriction range where you see lifespan extension in other strains. So, and I, and I say that because if you were to go to 20% restriction, it might the distribution might look different. You're going to get a smaller positive effect in the strains that respond positively. I don't know if you'll get a negative effect in the strains that respond negatively. But I think the point here needs to be that individual genetic makeup is going to impact whether or not caloric restriction has a positive, neutral, or net or negative effect on longevity. And we know that from the animal studies, but that never gets talked about when people are recommending these kinds of things in humans. And I think it's important, right? I think it's important that people at least understand that if we are recommending people should do intermittent fasting or caloric restriction um, based on the mouse studies, there's about a 30% chance it might actually make you live shorter if we go on based on the mouse studies. And that just doesn't get talked about. So, so that, you know, I think it's important that, that just to be honest about what the data actually show. So time-restricting eating may not help you, but equally grazing all the time, like eating like six meals a day, or is, yeah. is not a good idea either, right? It's something in between. Well, I don't know. I mean, why do you why do you say that? What's the so here's here's where What's I would say okay. we really have to yeah. look at the data. What's the data say? So I, mm -hmm. I, I and this is where I think it's easy sometimes in the nutrition world, particularly if you've got a favorite podcast that you listen to and <laughs> your favorite podcaster says something, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And it, you're right, it kind of does make sense that grazing all day long might be bad. What's the actual data to support mm -hmm. that? grazing all day long is actually bad in the long run for a variety of, of, of different health metrics. This is where the epidemiological studies really get complicated. And this is where like, again, we don't have time to talk through the protein question, 
or the red meat question. Red meats, boy, talk about a hot button issue for some people. Um, you know, so red meat's actually a really good one. I'll just use this as an example, right? I think the perception, and there's good reason to believe this, is that in general, red meat is not good for you. In fact, it's bad for you if you eat too much of it. That's the general perception out there. And there's lots of epidemiology supporting that. The problem is almost all of those studies have failed to control for what else and how much the people eating high amounts of red meat are eating. So there have been at least one study that really looked at diet quality and then asked if we, if we bin people by diet quality and we look at the effect of red meat in people who were eating an otherwise high quality diet, and I don't remember exactly how they defined it, but it's going to be something like low in processed foods and simple sugars, right? So people who were eating a high quality diet, there was no difference among the people who ate a lot of red meat versus people who ate no red meat. So context matters. And that's where these epidemiological studies, you know, sometimes can be misinterpreted, overinterpreted, or the interpretation is true in a certain context, but may not be true in other contexts. And by the way, I don't want to imply that the case is closed on red meat. Like, I'm not saying that that one study proves that you can go out and eat steak every day, which I would love to do, by the way. Um, you can go out and eat steak every day, as long as you're eating an otherwise high quality diet. I'm just saying that the if the case is not quite as clear cut as people make it out to be that some of these things that become sort of, you know, in the, the common sense bucket, <laughs> because we believe it to be true, they may not actually be true. And that's where I would put the time restricted feeding versus grazing thing. I think there are plausible reasons to say that, you know, all things being equal, we don't have all the data yet, all things being equal, probably not a good idea to have a really high sugar food right before you go to bed. Why? Well, that's going to keep your blood sugar high throughout the night. It's probably going to impact your sleep quality. So I think there's reasons to believe that's probably true, but has anybody ever done the definitive study to prove it? Probably not. So, you know, do we know that it's true? I don't know. Interesting. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I should have made it a sure. question rather than a statement. <laughs> <laughs>